Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle and thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. can click subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts, whether it's Apple, Google, Spotify, Good Pods, or YouTube itself. And, um, you know, with YouTube, I mean, that is obviously one of the more visible places to get the podcast. But honestly, anywhere you listen, it's it's going to help out and get awareness of the uh, of the podcast out. And I I think we we've got some great episodes coming up, and we've got some great episodes in the rearview mirror this summer. And I'm looking forward to continuing this uh, this this little run. I feel like the podcast has been on for the past couple of years. And then you can also check out patreoncom Cinema, where I occasionally do um, early access reviews to movies. I do um, series such as Leaving the Collection and Life Soundtrack. But also I cover, whenever I cover film festivals, whenever I cover Dragon Con, um, you, you can kind of, you can kind of uh, see some of the things I experience there. That is at patreon.com backslash sonicsima. So this episode was actually going to be at the beginning of July. It's actually going to be the beginning of August, but we had to reschedule for uh, very, uh, very understandable reasons. But that makes me that made me just much more excited to get to it and to get to it with our guests. Um, the guest, our guest, has been on the podcast before. Uh, established classics. We continue to go through that with him, as well as various actors and filmmakers over the years. And today we are discussing three films from director John Frankenheimer, in particular his Paranoia trilogy from the 1960s. But first, let me uh, welcome back to the podcast, Timothy J. Cox. Tim, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Brian. Happy to be back. So, um, I, you know, I, I don't know, I'm curious what your, before we get to the films themselves, I'm curious, what was your first experience with Frankenheimer's work? Wow. I think the first, because Frankenheimer was a director that I, you know, and I think I probably started seeing his work in, when I was in high school. And I just, you know, the old days of American movie classics when Bob Dorian hosted the show and uh, Frankenheimer's movies always popped up. And I, I think the first one I would have seen would have been Manchurian Candidate, but I remember very clearly seeing Birdman of Alcatraz and The Train mm. and uh, The French Connection 2 and Grand Prix and just, and Seconds, of course. And just, I, I was always blown away by just the, the variety of the kinds of films that he made, but especially in the movies that we're going to be discussing, uh, how he was so, even back in the 1960s, the movies that the, the movies were very prophetic of like of how, where we were going in the direction of the world, very much the way Patty Chayefsky was with, with Network in 1976. Mm -hmm. um, he, uh, but, I remember very clearly like the Manchurian candidate because I think, you know, I think when it, when it first came out, when, and then around the time when president Kennedy was assassinated, the movie was shelved for 
a number, I think what, 25 years or something like yeah. that. And, and I think like it, when it came out on VHS in the early 90s, everybody was clamoring to see it, uh, to get their hands on it, because it was, many people regarded as one of probably the greatest political thriller of all time. And um, I, of course, you know, share that opinion. And so, mm-hmm. and of course, it just, um, I didn't like, you know, in the 1960s, as someone who had watched a lot of movies from that period, I'd never seen a movie like The Manchurian Candidate. Mm-hmm. Even, re- even revisiting it in preparation for this, it still feels fresh, new, original. It doesn't feel like uh, it still plays very well. It's still terrifying. It's still, um, and that's all of John Frankenheimer's films, Seven Days in May, The Train, Seconds. Uh, all of them are, uh, are extraordinary. Black Sunday is another one. Um, and I know, I mean, you can have a lot of fun with uh, John Frankenheimer. One of his last movies, he directed uh, The Island of Dr. Moreau, which uh, was a troubled production. I think mm. troubled is the nicest, the <laughs> nice way of uh, describing that. But like, uh, but like in just a career, I always think John Frankenheimer, he was a very underrated director, never nominated for an Academy Award. I mean, granted, he, late in his career, he really excelled uh, with a number of really, really extraordinary television movies against mm-hmm. against the wall about the Attica rising, uh, the burning season about Chico Mendes, which featured Raul Julia, one of his last performances, Andersonville, mm-hmm. uh, and and George Wallace. So he was not afraid to uh, tackle various uh, topics, especially you know uh, uh, topics of like someone like George Wallace, who was you know you know, uh, kind of vilified certainly in his, his lifetime and his memory, you know, uh, but he was, he was able to tell their story. And uh, now I'm, I'm excited that we're, we're, we're chatting about him today. Yeah. Same. I, I mean, this is actually my second time talking about Frank and Amar on the podcast. Uh, a couple <laughs> of years ago, uh, my uh, resident horror uh, expert, Phil Fatso and I were talking about 1996 horror and we did bring up the Island of Dr. Moreau. And I think that was my first time with Frankenheimer. And it's like, I, I, I didn't necessarily think of him a, as a Frankenheimer production. I didn't necessarily, his name was not necessarily on my radar yet. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, oh, it's such a terrible movie. I mean, it's got some, <laughs> it's got some gonzo things to it that are really weird, but it's, I, I, Man, I, I forgot how just painful that movie was when I was rewatching it a couple of years ago. But um, it's funny because of the fact that my first real, I you know, I mean, that one, he, he came on to that one late. I mean, he, he came on, on to that one in the middle of production. So, I mean, it, it, you know, it's not necessarily fair to, you know, shoehorn him with that one and how, oh, sure. how troubled that one was. But... Uh, you know, my first, and we'll talk about it when we talk about the film later, my my first experience with probably what you would say a pure Frankenheimer film was, was Seconds. Mm. And that was, and I was a freshman in high school, and I was still, you know, I had not quite, we'll talk about it more, but needless to say, I did not, the the reaction I had for that movie was very, I wasn't. I really liked it, but I wasn't quite sure what I thought about it. 
But again, we'll get to that later because of the fact sure. that there's a lot I want to talk about with that. Um, yeah. And then, you know, he did Ronin a couple of years after Moreau, which is just a fantastic spy thriller. And then that he, was really a nice return to form for him. Yeah. And I think that was one of his, like, I think he did that and then Reindeer Games. But Ronin was like a reminder of how good he really, really was. Yeah. And, um, and then, yeah, Reindeer Games, unfortunately, I don't think that did very, very well. And, and then he passed away mm-hmm. uh, unexpectedly uh, uh, in 2002, Two. I think it was. Yeah. 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 And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a shame that I didn't really get a chance to, you know, see him, you know, to see what some of that later era after Ronin might have been, because... I mean, Reindeer Games was, you know, it was a fine movie, but it was also a very silly movie. Um, you know, it's like, and then we, you know, by by that point, I believe I had seen Manchurian Candidate, and I had started to see maybe a few more of his films. But, uh, yeah, um, so the movies we're focusing on are Manchurian Candidate, Seven Days in Maine, Seconds, which are unofficially known as his paranoia trilogy from the 60s. <laughs> and um, one of the things that I I think, you know, to your point on Manchurian Candidate, really all of these, they you could make each of these movies today and they would be just as fresh and innovative as they were at the time. And, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think because of the fact that really with the exception of Manchurian Candidate, None of them really place them. Certainly, Seven Days in May and Seconds, they don't really place themselves in a particular time and place. And I think that's that. That is something that makes those stories kind of transferable to even like modern times. Sure. And you know, it's it's funny because of the fact that you did mention the JFK assassination, and I don't. From my understanding, it was never. I don't think it was deliberately the JFK assassination that kept it out of circulation for that long. I think there was an issue that Frank Sinatra had with the uh, studio and the rights ah, issues, which got it. you know. <laughs> speaking of uh, contemporary subjects, um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so uh, so he was the one who I think he bought the movie and kept it deliberately kept it out of circulation like if it's not going to make money for aim if I'm not making money off of it nobody's making money off of it so got got um it. but you you look at the even though it is very much set in the McCarthy area very much takes place during uh the McCarthy area era red scare and the height in the early years of the cold war um the filmmaking, to your point, that Frankenheimer employs is very contemporary. It's very fresh. And it's very it's very much unlike anything that people were doing at the time. I mean, really, he he's somebody who in a way, I, I think he's somebody who might I think with these films, I think to a certain extent, he probably is a bit too early to catch that wave of late 60s, early 
70s, the, the rise of the Hollywood filmmakers of the 70s, but his mm-hmm. movies really do kind of feel very much in the same vein as a lot of those great films do. Oh, sure. Absolutely. So we are going to start with 1962's Manchurian Candidate, easily the most famous of these. Uh, It is based on the novel by Richard Condon, and it is a film uh, where that takes place during the Cold War. Uh, The film begins in the during the Korean War, 1952, and. There are American soldiers who have been uh, taken hostage, and they've also they they go through an experience. We don't completely know the experience right off the bat, but we know it is a shared one with this platoon, and it has a nefarious purpose later on when many of the soldiers return home. The chief soldier is Staff Sergeant Raymond Shaw, uh, played by Lawrence Harvey, whose mother is married to a congressman who is a firebrand when it comes to being anti-communist. And Frank Sinatra plays Major Bennett Marco, who is his, who is uh, Shaw's commanding officer. And he begins to uncover this conspiracy regarding Shaw that will be used to propel the congressman, John A. Islin, to the heights of the presidency. And there's, there's a lot that I'm kind of leaving out. There's a lot that I'm dancing around. I mean, <laughs> yes, it's a 60-year-old movie, but at the same time, I, I think movies like Manchurian Candidate benefit the less you know about them. And I, I think that this is one, if you let it, if you let it carry you on its story, you're, you're going to find yourself in, significantly surprised as well as just as captivated as any movie can make it. Oh, sure. This is a movie, if you, if you watch it and you let it wash over you, not don't read anything uh, about it, and it, it, it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. The fact that, uh, you know, that Lawrence Harvey, you know, that all of these soldiers, you know, were uh, brainwashed and uh, re- being led, being duped into being responsible for the overthrow of the U.S. government, and uh, and it's you know the old age-old story of people who want power and the things that they're willing to do, and you know I suppose there are some you know correlations that people could draw between the film world and uh, the modern world. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of uh, John Frankenheimer's films, there's definitely those um, similarities that you could draw. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, it, it's quite frightening. I mean, and I think that's when, you know, over the last couple of years in the political landscape, movies like Seven Days in May and The Manchurian Candidate specifically have been brought up. It's like, oh, we're living in that kind of uh, yeah. world. And so, um, and if, it, it, it's, it's, it's extraordinary just how 
again, like it just feels so real and so raw. It, it really, and, I, and I've probably seen it over the last 25 years. I've probably seen it at least maybe five or six times. And every time, even though when you know what's coming, uh, it's still riveting. Yeah. It's still riveting and it's still uh, terrifying, but wonderful screenplay by George Axelrod, who, you know, on the novel by Richard Condon, the stellar cast. Mm. Uh, I, don't, I don't think Frank Sinatra ever gave a better performance on film. Yeah. Um, uh, but Lawrence Harvey, uh, Janet Lee, Henry Silva, James Gregory, but of course, the ultimate surprise in this movie is Angela Lansbury, who, you know, uh, no, with all no offense to uh, Patty Duke, but Angela Lansbury should have won the Academy <laughs> Award for for this performance. But uh, yeah. she she won the Golden Globe, but and uh, <laughs> I think the National Board of Review. But she, but the thing is, um, she's absolutely terrifying. And of course, there the, the the anyone who's ever seen the movie, there's this the main scene where you know just like the use of uh, words and playing cards that she's able to kind of trigger. Lawrence Harvey, who plays her son, to, you know, do the ultimate in, uh, you know, uh, the ultimate atrocity. Um, sadly, I don't think she ever had another film role as meaty as as this again. Yeah. Uh, but uh, for this, if if this was the mm -hmm. only thing that she ever did in her entire career, um, this, you know, it, it would have been um, it, it would have been enough. Yeah, I mean, I I think I think Lansbury in this film is probably my my favorite supporting role in the film ever. I I, mm -hmm. I think it's that good. Um, it's it's just there's there's such and the funny thing is it's like you know you you and I are roughly about the same age I think uh, mm -hmm. so we we're familiar with Murder She Wrote. Oh sure. You know, even if we didn't necessarily watch it, we were at least familiar with it. And Angela. Oh, I did. Angela I am Lansbury, a big. I'm a, I'm a big Murder She Wrote yeah. fan. <laughs> and the Angela Lansbury of Murder She Wrote. Um. So the first time you see her in this, it's like holy, holy shit. Uh, this yeah. is this is just another level entirely of her performance. But it was funny because was it early. Was it last year or the year before? Might have been the year before, but I, I recently watched a film noir that she did prior to Manchurian Candidate, My Life at My Life to, at Stake, I think is the name of it. But it was a 1950s film noir. It's you know fairly straightforward noir, but you really do see you really do see the same type of thing in that movie that she brings to her character here. Mm -hmm. You really see that insidious nature that she's capable of turning on a dime as well as being seductive, as well as being somebody who is very charismatic too. Yeah. And well, yeah. Oh no, I was just, uh, you know, I think that's John Frankenheimer. John Frankenheimer in all of his, you look at the uh, the roster of the many actors that he worked with, he was able to get extraordinary performances from every actor he worked with. And, you know, I mean, I think of like Telly Savalas and, and Birdman of Alcatraz, you know, play, you know, um, not a tough guy part. 
Um, John Frankenheimer saw something in in him in in actors that maybe Hollywood did not. Hollywood likes to pigeonhole actors. They still like to pigeonhole. Yeah. Um, and the, John Frankenheimer loved to challenge his actors and push them. And uh, and this is just probably the best example. And he was also able to get great performances out of Burt Lancaster. Of course, you know, Seven Days in May and Burt mm -hmm. Lancaster not known for being the easiest person to work with. They apparently had a really wonderful working relationship. I think mm -hmm. they did four or five films together. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, you know, to the actors, of course, you know, the, to their talents, but you got to credit uh, John Frankenheimer too for trusting them and seeing that they have that character uh, within them that, that they can play. Yeah. I mean, and you brought up modern politics and, you know, I mean, obviously in the 60s we had the Kennedy assassination and, I mean, certainly Manchurian Candidate very much plays into, and to a certain extent, Seven Days in May very much play into some of the conspiracy theories that we've heard over the years regarding the Kennedy assassination. Sure. And, you know, it's like you, 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 but you brought up modern politics and one of the things I was thinking about you know, when, when thinking about all three of these movies is, you know, we, we, you know, one of the big things that I have been fascinated by and very leery on as well is the conspiracy theory known as QAnon. And, you know, if you look at each of these films and you follow QAnon in, in the sense of at least he understanding some of the tenets around it and some of the evolving ideas around it, there are elements from each of these movies in that conspiracy theory. And yeah. they've been tied into that conspiracy theory. And, I mean, it's not necessarily surprising. I mean, movies have been a fun fundamental part of that conspiracy theory from Jump Street. But... Um, you know, I mean, the the thing is, it's like I I remember first hearing Manchurian Candidate uh, in Conspiracy Theory, the Richard Donner film, where oh, you sure. know, Julia Roberts says, "Oh, it's Manchurian Candidate type of stuff that's going on with Mel Gibson's character," mm -hmm. and that's what got me got on my radar, and I think I eventually found it a couple a year or two later, and saw it and was just absolutely captivated by this. The, the thing that is, I think one of the things that I love about Frankenheimer and all of these movies is the way he frames shots. Mm -hmm. It's very particular. And the way he uses close-ups on characters and his choice of when to use close-ups on characters, I, I think is really is really important to the success of all of these films. And, you know, there, there are some remarkable moments in this one especially. And I, I love, and you notice it right away in, in the early parts of this, this movie, especially when it comes to Shaw, especially when it comes to Marco, and when you're starting to, when... Marco's starting to piece together what's going on. Mm -hmm. and he's starting to he's starting to 
have cracks in his thinking of what is what he was programmed to think. And right. I I love that as he tries to pull um, Shaw further and further into realizing what he realizes, you get these fascinating close-ups. And, of course, there's a very famous shot that's out of focus that goes into focus. It was an accident on Frank and Amber's part, but it's one of the most <laughs> famous parts of the entire movie. Um, there, I love that there's a sparse use of music in this movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's funny. What we do here is feels somewhat melodramatic. It's like it it feels very elegant and maybe not the way somebody would score a movie like this now. But when it when the music does come in, it really you really start to notice it. But almost because of the fact that they don't use music quite as heavily as you would think, you know, it's almost uh, like Frankenheimer really is helping us kind of understand why, what this type of uh, story is doing. And under it, he's challenging us to, to have those moments of suspense for ourselves as we're watching it. Well, and he wants to, I think, you know, with all of his movies, and that's interesting. I didn't even think about the the lack of a, a concrete musical score. He wants he doesn't want any like he wants you to be drawn into the story. And he wants it's a warning that this this is possible that it is possible that something like this could happen. Or and same thing with Seven Days in May and Seconds and all of that is that they're all they're all cautionary tales of like this is where things could be going. Mm-hmm. potentially if we don't do dot, 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 you know, uh, or uh, these are the things that people will do for power yeah. or elected office or uh, power or money or fame or fortune or what have you. And, uh, and no, it's, and I also love, you know, in the close-ups, you know, you really see like the beads of sweat going down Sinatra's face. And like, uh, I mean, you, you really, you feel like you're in it. You really feel like you're, you're, you're in it. And just, uh, and I think also the the lack of the use of the music. I think it, it adds like it, it's it's tense. Mm-hmm. It's all the way out. Like it's, you know, I think let's see the length of this movie. It's 126 minutes, and it never, and it feels like it never lets up. Yeah. Like there's never like, uh, it's unrelenting mm-hmm. and. Uh, no, it's. Uh, I haven't seen the uh, the Jonathan Demme did a um, uh, a remake, an updated version, uh, a couple of years ago before he passed away. But uh, I never saw it. Not not out of not that I didn't like. like oh, I'm out of loyalty to this movie. Just I just never got around to seeing it. But um, it had Denzel Washington, Meryl Streep, Liam Schreiber, John Voight, great cast, and a great director in his own right and Jonathan yeah. Demi, but uh, I don't Did you ever see it or? I, I saw it in 2004 and the way I felt about it was, I mean, it was an interesting, it was an interesting remake, but ultimately I felt like it lacked the, the same bite that Frank and Amherst film did. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 I do want to give it another watch, though, because I haven't seen in, oh, going on 20 years. Um, and I, you know, the, the cast is just fantastic in it. Um, and I'm curious how I would feel about watching it a second time. And, yeah, I mean, obviously, I don't think it's ever going to match the original. And I, I think part of it is, I, I think the black and white cinematography, the choice to do cinematography black and white here, and in all three of these movies, is a fundamental part of why they all succeed. And Oh, yeah. Why they all feel almost otherworldly to a certain extent. And, I mean, it goes to... It goes to the way Frankenheimer builds the visual style. He uses weird camera angles. He uses deep focus. He uses just very unique compositions when it comes to uh, framing these these events that we see. And it really is it put it puts us on our toes. And he, I, he wants you. He wants you unsettled. Yeah. yeah. He, he wants you unsettled. It's we're not watching a, a Doris Day movie. You know, I mean, this is something that like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he wants it to, to have like a real punch in the gut. Yeah. 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 And, and the, the thing is, it's like, I mean, I, I think this movie, I, I, I have always thought this movie was one of the best films I've ever seen. I still feel that way. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's funny because of the fact that I, it's almost as, in a way, it's as indicative of the Cold War era as Doctor Strangelove is, where, I mean, both movies are essentially taking very... I mean, it, it's hard to stretch this and call it a dark comedy, but there are moments in it where, especially with the way things uh, with the way things end up, where it is very darkly funny in in the way that plans do not necessarily go the way they expect them to. And, um, you know, but this is ultimately a tragedy because of the fact that, you know, it's, it's about, it's as much about the, the tantalizing sense of power that politics gives people by giving people platform, by giving people like Iceland, a platform and giving people like Lansbury's character a glimpse of what that power can bring, it it corrupts them. It corrupts them completely. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Now it's and I think that's what it's. Uh, you know, a lot of his movies, there it's it's about like a, a corruption, like that he, you know. As a director, you know, working on live television, he, I think he was an assistant director to Sidney Lumet, also a, a brilliant director who tackled these kinds of uh, subjects more so in like, you know, with police corruption and in the law, law and things like that. But directors like that at that time and working with writers like Rod Serling and they, and Patty Chayefsky, they just saw the world in a way that I don't know. It was like they had like a, a, a crystal ball that they were able to see that the world was going was going in a direction that people should probably be a little more concerned about. And uh, and I often wonder. I often say, you know, when I read the newspaper these days, I often say, God, I wonder, you know, like Rod 
excuse me, Ron Serling and Patty Chayefsky couldn't concoct anything even close no, to no. what is going on <laughs> in when you turn on the news. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're they're up there like laughing their asses off. Probably it's like yeah. told you, told you, <laughs> like you know. But it's uh, and the thing is, th- on this viewing. Seven days in May hit a little closer to home. This one did too, and yeah. and and all, I think all three films because, uh, like you know, we watched seconds, and I felt like uncomfortable afterwards. I mean, but like, uh, but I think that's what he wants you. Yeah, that's why Frankenheimer was such a great filmmaker. Is that you don't walk out of his movies with like an answer. You yeah. walk out with more. You walk out with more questions. You walk out. Uh, and we should be questioning, like, you know, our political leaders are, you know, uh, and we should be asking them the tough questions, not, you know, because um, there's a lot to be concerned about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the thing is, it's like you you look at, there's there's so much that can be said about this. You know, you can look at the, you know, you can look at the Queen of Diamonds being the trigger card almost in yeah. edible terms because of, you know the fact that it's it's Shaw's mother that's ultimately his handler, and is forcing him to do the things he's doing. You know, right. you can look at the idea of Johnny Eisenlin. You know, he's he's ultimately a buffoon, but he's a useful buffoon for those who are wanting power. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> just just a little bit. Just sounds a little, <laughs> little bit on the just, nose. Just That's, and James Gregory is wonderful in the film. And oh yeah, uh, and but like he, uh, but yeah, it's perfect. He's got that the bluster and all of that, and you know, uh, you know I mean, uh, but it's funny, you know, without mentioning names, you know, is he is he the former current uh, <laughs> guy from sixteen hundred Pennsylvania Avenue, or is he the other, you know, guy from a couple of years ago who? Yeah. Uh, you know, so I don't know. They, it's kind of a draw. I think there, there's some similarities between both. I think. Yeah. But uh, now it, it's, it's a movie that. Um, this is one of those movies where they have that list of like a thousand and one movies you should see before you die. This is one that you, you know, it, it's it's a must. Yeah. Just because, well, because everybody walks away from it with different. Uh, you know, different uh, opinions. And of course, also, it is also a very tightly constructed, very well shot, very well made political thriller. And every political thriller that came afterwards, every Tom Clancy novel or story, all of them, I'm sure in some way, owe a lot to specifically this movie and to John Frankenheimer uh, as a director, because he, he, he crafted what we know to be the modern political thriller. Oh yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, the the thing is it's like I I love, you know, we haven't talked about the dream sequence. We haven't talked about the the you know, there's something about the narration that feels off about this movie. There's the fact that so much of it revolves around Shaw. Is yeah. a, he's he's a very odd protagonist and you know, and a big part of that is because obviously so many people hate Shaw, but you listen to the way Lawrence Harvey talks, and it's just you oh you get the sense early on that something's not quite right with him. Yeah. And you know, 
then you've got the uh, you've got the stacked deck sequence between where Sinatra, where Marco um, is trying to get to the truth. You you have the uh, you have the backstory that Shaw tells of the time he fell in love before his mother squashed that, and mm-hmm. I mean there are so many sequences in this movie that are just absolutely astonishing in. And you know this is all in two hours, just over two hours, and yeah. it doesn't feel like it takes a breath for a minute. And so much of it, it and there's the only real sense of traditional suspense in this movie is the final sequence yeah. at, at the convention hall, and mm-hmm. the fact that this movie doesn't really have, you know, the the types of action sequences that we would see later by Frankenheimer in Ronin and other filmmakers and other political thrillers. It's it says something that we're just so utterly engaged with this story from the start that we just can't it's it's impossible for us not to get, be Captivate and even move to a certain extent by what happens at the end, which is truly a uh, just a very shock, shocking ending. Mm-hmm. But it's also well, ending that feel where you feel like, um, where you feel like, in a way, you feel like Shaw has taken some of his life back. And it's kind of, a, I mean, the Lawrence Harvey specifically, like there was some criticism of his performance that like people thought he was ro- robotic-like, but what Frankenheimer and what he did effect, very effectively in his performance was progressively, you just see this man just become completely a shell, not yeah. a human anymore. And what Frankenheimer was able to do was just to show how his world is just crumbling and the, and the distortion around him that in the end, that, that is shocking. How else could it have ended? You know, uh, it's so, um, you really feel for all of these characters. Also, it's also worthy of note. There's a scene on the train that Frank Sinatra and Janet Lee have, and it's such a sad scene. Um, if you watch the scene, Janet Lee, on the day that she filmed that scene, uh, had divorce papers delivered to her by Tony Curtis. Um, and then she had to go and film this scene. And just knowing that and knowing that she was still able to give this amazing performance under those uh, circumstances, uh, it's it's extraordinary. Everybody in the movie uh, really gives, uh, again, like, I think it's the best thing uh, Sinatra ever did on film. And I think it's a movie that, you know, I mean, a lot of it was always said about Sinatra when acting like, you know, that he was lazy and, and didn't always show up. But uh, I, I would say this one and the man with the golden arm that with the uh, Otto Preminger, uh, he, that showed that he could act, I think, if, you know, if he stepped up to the plate, which he did. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, Janet Lee, I mean, obviously everybody knows her for Psycho, but she also has a terrific performance in this, and she also has a terrific performance in Orson Welles' Touch of Evil. Oh yes. Those those are three all time great 
movies that she was a part of. And, you know, it's like, that's, that's one of the things that is so extraordinary about this time of, about this type, that, that time, that period of time when it came to movies is the fact that it's like you, you have these actors, actors whom, you know, maybe, you know, you're probably best known for one movie, but you probably have like two or three that could easily, you could easily say, well, it would make sense if they were known for that movie as well. Right. And I mean, you know, that's one of the, that's one of the reasons I'm so fascinated to do uh, established classics with you, Tim, is the fact that it's like we're going into these classic movies and we're talking about these classic movies and we're talking about an era of filmmaking that just really doesn't exist anymore and probably now, hasn't existed since the 70s. I mean, the 70s was really, I think, the last real golden era of movie making. I mean, think about a movie like Harold and Maude, or, you know, Harold and Maude couldn't be made the way Hal Ashby made it. None of Hal Ashby's movies could be made the way he did it. I mean, he, he did them so delicately and so wonderfully, and like, you know, they're like wonderful paintings. Hal Ashby is another one that we got to talk about sometime, but because I could go for hours <laughs> on Hal Ashby. But like, you know, the way that uh, movies like, uh, you know, Taxi Driver or, you know, even The Godfather or The Graduate or any of those films. Um, you know, you know, Frankenheimer himself, I think he struggled in the 70s. I think, you know, like, uh, I think when a lot of that new Hollywood came in, he worked, but like there was a noticeable, you know, I mean, I, I think he did a really nice job in The French Connection too. And, uh, but like uh, a lot of, uh, I think he ended the, the decade with a movie by his own admission. I, I forget the name, I think it was like prehistoric or something like that. It was a movie that, I think it was about like a, uh, I, a Bigfoot or something like that. But yeah. it was a movie that he himself stated that he was not uh, he was not very proud of. And uh, but uh, no, I mean definitely, I would say the '60s were were his time. And uh, and uh, I'm I'm happy that his movies uh, that all of these years later that we're still discussing uh, the Manchurian Candidate. Yeah. And uh, one last thing I did want to bring up about um, Manchurian Candidate before we continue. One thing that really struck me this time around is that how much of this is really, uh, before we even really had term this term in mind for people coming back from war, this movie is so much about soldiers dealing with PTSD after mm -hmm. war. And I think that's in this is and that's something that is very that feels very extraordinary in the fact that again this is another thing that Frankenheimer seemed to possibly see coming and this this is an interesting vehicle for it when it comes to uh those ideas. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, in movies prior to the Manchurian Candidate, like they probably addressed P 
PTSD, like, uh, you know, in the best years of our lives, William Wyler's uh, exceptional film, maybe Gentleman's Agreement, maybe, but uh, certainly not uh, in such a real honest way. And even without saying the phrase uh, PTSD, uh, you know, I mean, and then of course for movies that came later, like How Ashby's Coming Home or Born on the Fourth of July or, you know, I mean, yeah. but, but this one, it really... Uh, I don't know. I don't know if they used to call it shell shocked or what have you, but um, but no, it's it, it really is. I mean, you know, like Sinatra on one hand, Bennett Marco, his character very much like uh, just the experiences of of war as a whole, and then of course Lawrence Harvey, and and that is exploited yeah. by uh, by these people for uh, you know, and the thing is, you know. God, try not to give anything away. <laughs> uh, but like, uh, you know, the fact that people can just look at a person and just use them as a tool to, you know, and, they, and, and the crazy thing is, is like, you know, when the movie ends and they, they'll try it again with someone else. Yeah. And they'll try it again in five more years or 10 more years. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's uh, no, it's, it, it, it sends a chill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it definitely does. Or they might try something else, like staging a coup against the sitting president. And that brings us to our second film in this trilogy, Seven Days in May, which was a new one for me. I had not seen this before. Uh, It has Burt Lancaster, has Frederick March, it has Kirk Douglas in it. And... um, this this is if you know Manchurian Candidate. I I think it uses McCarthyism to tie into some of the conspiratorial thinkings about the government, about the motives of people in power. Uh, in a very, I mean, not a subtle way, but certainly in a way that makes you think about what the motivations of people in power are. This this one very much takes a very direct idea of what in what a possible overthrow of the government um, could look like, and it is a uh, it's based on a novel by Fletcher Neville and Charles W. Bailey the second. Um, and it is scripted by Rod Serling. Yeah. That, that immediately was like, really? I, I, I oh, had yeah. no idea that this was um, Rod Serling um, when I saw his name in the credits. And it, it's, you know, I can't think, there are few writer-director pairings when it comes to political conspiracy that I think are as, ideally suited as Frankenheimer and Serling are. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, you you think about what Twilight Zone was. Twilight Zone is basically um, stories, was essentially morality story tales with parables about being human and using genre as a way of getting to emotional truths that 
we sometimes have, are uncomfortable uh, dealing with as mm-hmm. as humans. And, you know, one of the things in what Seven Days in May ponders is the idea of a military coup at the height of the Cold War um, because a president wants to work towards uh, nuclear disarmament with the Russians. With the Soviet Union, yeah. And, uh, you know, this was, this was released in 1964, so it came out a year after the Kennedy assassination. Um, and I, I'm, I can't imagine, it would make sense that audiences were probably not prepared to go down this road. Um, but it definitely feels like it's probably one of Oliver Stone's favorite movies if you've seen JFK. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's a uh, you know the thing it's it has all of like again like you know this is a movie that today you have you have a president with a uh, with a, an approval rating of way under fifty percent who wants to sign this uh, disarmament with uh, the Soviet Union, uh, preferring peace. Uh, his health is not uh, the best, and. Um, some in the military, uh, you know, think that P- a disarmament that the goal should not be to peace is to use force to show the Soviet Union who the boss is, and that's uh, that's ultimately and, and it's this battle of wills between uh, Frederick March as the president and uh, and Burt Lancaster as uh, I think he's the general of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and. Um, you know, of what he's trying to do. And uh, again, I mean, viewing this, I mean, like, again, one, uh, it's such an exceptional film with an amazing cast. Edmund O'Brien, you know, uh, Senator Raymond Clark and like uh, Martin Balsam and uh, Ava Gardner. And it's, I mean, this is a real extraordinary movie. And it's, in a way, someone asked, I said, is it, as good as Manchurian Candidate. I think they're both, I think when you watch one, I think you have to watch the other as a companion piece to really understand um, what Frankenheimer was trying to say about the country at that time and where, and the Cold War and the effect that it had and where we were going. And of course we were right in the midst of the Vietnam War. Um, We had had a president that was assassinated uh, you know, civil rights and all of these kinds of things that were going on. And it was the, it, it was, it was a wild, it was a wild time. And, and not even, yeah. not even living through it. I mean, like, you know, just, a, I mean, I, of course, you know, I was born in 76. So it's like everything that I know about it is just from reading and from documentaries and from movies like this and the Manchurian candidate, you know, yeah. where you get a pretty, uh, very clear idea and also seeing this movie and now looking at where we are currently in the modern world that, you know, you know, you, you can't help but think of uh, January 6th, the events of January 6th and, and all things like that, that, uh, that it is possible that upon an overthrow of everything that we hold dear uh, is happened. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I mean, you know, it, this is, I think this is the one above all others that obviously made me think of uh, similarities with QAnon because of the fact that basically it does deal with this idea of a deep state of um, non-elected uh, people who essentially want to take control of the government. And, you know, the film starts with counter-protesters outside of the White House, which I couldn't help but think of um, what happened in Charlottesville in 2017, the yep. violent, the, uh, violent uh, protest there. And, um, and then, of course, it's basically the idea that the military will act on its own. You know, and the thing is, it's like we are very fortunate that on January 6th, it was civilians who were ultimately responsible for what happened, and they did not have the military with them. Yeah. And that we are very fortunate because if that had been the case, what would what would the country look like now? And yeah. um you know, not saying it's necessarily better now, but it's certainly better than the alternative. And I, I love that he Serling was such a smart choice for the screenplay here because this is this is essentially a big screen Twilight Zone. Is it oh, yeah. very much because it's essentially is a what if scenario, and I yes. love. I love the poster on this where it's like, you know, and it could happen. Is it now? Is it 1970 or is it in the future? And it's like, you know, the idea that this could happen at any time. And it, the frightening thing is it, if things had gone differently on January 6th, it could have very well happened. But, yeah. um, no, it's, uh, it's, I love that this this is another great example of Frankenheimer not really using action to drive narrative and to build suspense. This is this is a movie where conversations build suspense. And yeah. this is where his use of the camera, his use of close-ups his use of odd angles and the way that he builds shots just takes a premise to a completely different level. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that, you know, that he does and that, and with him and Serling together is that they kind of hold a mirror up to the audience and to the characters and say like, you know, some of our like, and it's like some of your, the worst enemy sometimes is often you, Yeah, you know, it's like, uh, and that, uh, now I love the idea that, that this is, this is, this is really a, a twilight zone episode. And it really is. Um, I, I probably hadn't seen this for about 20 years. And again, like it feels 100% fresh, raw. Nobody was making movies like this at the time. I mean, you no. think about, Think about the 1960s. Like the 60s was kind of like a, you know, um, I mean, that was the time of like a lot of big musicals and things like that, which, you know, uh, um, uh, movies like this, 
I don't know if this would be a big would have been a big moneymaker, even with the number of stars. Uh, I mean, Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas especially were box office draws. But this might have been a movie that that scared people. Yeah. Uh, and that you know, like, no, I'm going to go see My Fair Lady or The Sound of Music or you know something like that, which is fine. But it's like these are the kinds of movies that people that we're, that we're talking about today, I mean, uh, you know, 50, 60 years later, that uh, because it's prophetic, yeah. and that's what's scary about it. it, it it's, it's, it's why, like, network was, you know, I mean, network is the thing that, I mean, in, in a modern, like, in today, network is the thing that I always reference, just because mm-hmm. Patty Chayefsky was right. But also, when we get the seconds, we're going to find out that, like, Frankenheimer was right, too. I mean, oh, yeah. just this, um, <laughs> but like uh, with this and like just the mo- like the political world of like people who there's there's a wonderful scene where Burt Lancaster and Frederick March they finally you know and Frederick or Burt Lancaster I'm paraphrasing the dialogue and basically calling him weak and Frederick March turns to him and says then why the hell didn't you do something about it why the hell didn't you run for president why the hell like, yeah. like you know if you think you can do the job run and that's the thing today it's like everybody they'll go on a uh you know a talk show or what have you or a podcast or whatever and say oh this so-and-so is doing this or so-and-so is not doing that then run but they never do they never (laughs) do yeah um and one of the things i do like about this movie is you know you even if we don't agree with the means that Lancaster and everybody working with him are using to try to achieve what they're trying to achieve. Because of the text of the movie, you understand the why they feel the way they do about the disarmament. Oh, sure. One of the things that is very clear about Lancaster, General Scott, in... All of his, all of the people who are working with him in this movie is Pearl Harbor. The failure that was Pearl Harbor looms very large. Mm-hmm. They don't want to be caught unaware again, and that sure. for them is the fear of what disarmament means: is that somebody could sneak up on us again and do it differently and have much more cataclysmic consequences. I like that as a hook, and it gives you a sense of understanding, even if we don't agree with the means that they're going about things, we understand the reasons why they feel the way they do. And that is such an important part of this movie working. Yeah, I don't think that, yeah, I I agree with that. I don't know if you know, it's easy to label Burt Lancaster's character as kind of a villain. No, I think there are people, you know, who see the United States as one thing, and there are people that see the United States as another. And uh, and I, but I think rather than we have to work together, and I think that's what uh, you know, Burt Lancaster. He just sees Frederick March's character as just weak and a failure as a president. He would just rather just have him out of there and you know, solve the problem himself. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. 
And um, this is this is a uh, I I love we I talked a bit about the score and the use of this score. I love the Goldsmith score in this, which is all oh, yeah. percussion, all piano. It really does. Now this is something where even if there's not conventional narrative tricks to building suspense in this movie. I do think there there's cinematic tricks that Frankenheimer uses, and I think the the Goldsmith score is a great example of that. I, mm-hmm. I think the fact that he is using this very nerve wracking percussive score really gets to how terrifying this movie it, this this premise is and this sure. prospect is and uh you you brought the uh scene with uh Lancaster and March at the end that is a fantastic scene and it it's it's basically a game of chicken between the two where they're oh. basically they're basically not necessarily feeling each other out but at least trying to goad each other into giving up the game to a certain extent. And, yeah. you know, everybody's trying to find out the truth, and you have this you have this suspense built where, you know, they're trying to realize if, if something has been saved or not that will expose the truth that could get the... that, that could get Lancaster and others to back down... And um, it's it's really a gripping movie. I mean, it's it in a way it's more conventional than the Manchurian can- Candidate is in its approach, mm-hmm. but because of the fact that it deals with so many complicated and worthy uh, moral questions, it's it's one where I I think we 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 appreciate that more straightforward narrative approach and that Simak approach to it that Frankenheimer has compared to what he did in Manchurian Candidate. Sure. Well, and I think you said, you know, I mean, this is like uh, the the behavior and it, it's a, about, you know, morality. Like what, like, you know, what are you willing to do for your country? Yeah. You know, are you willing to overthrow or throw out the Constitution and overthrow the president because you don't agree with what they, you know, what they're trying to do. Thinking in the best interest of the country, not just the best interest of James Mattoon Scott, who Burt Lancaster plays. So yeah. it's, it's a really, uh, it's one of those movies where I watch, like, I always say, I don't envy anybody who, who sits in the office as president of the United States, even you know, just because uh, you have to make these uh, these decisions constantly that not everybody is going to uh, agree with. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, the the first two movies in this uh, trilogy are very resolutely in the political landscape, and it made sense when you mm-hmm. consider everything that's going on in the '60s. From a political sure. standpoint, you've got the Cold War going on, you've got racial tensions at home, uh, the Civil Rights Act is the Civil Rights Movement is in its is starting its most mi- visible phase. Um, 
And it's interesting that the third film in this, like I said, it's an unofficial trilogy of uh, paranoia really is about the personal. And that is his 1966 film, Seconds. Uh, as I as I mentioned, um, this was my first official being aware of his name uh, movie of John Frankenheimer's that I'd seen. I saw it at the Georgia State University uh, theater screen screening room in my first year of college, and I I. I was familiar with Frank Narmer's name because of Moreau and, you know, starting to, and it was an older movie that I'd never seen. So it's like, okay, I can get in for free. I'm curious to see what this is like. It's 30th anniversary. Okay. And, uh, I'd also seen Rock Hudson in, uh, my mom had showed me some of the Doris Day romantic comedies that he had, he had done. And mm-hmm. I watching Watching this movie when I was nineteen was I was not prepared for this movie in nineteen at nineteen. Um but it stayed with me. And we'll get into why it stayed with me. Uh fast forward to twenty twenty. Um I had had the movie in the criterion the criterion disc for a few years. Because the movie had stuck with me, and because of the fact that it's like, okay, yeah, I, I, I'm curious to see this again. Um, and this was right after movie theaters shut down for COVID, and so it was still, I was really contemplating things from a life perspective, and wasn't quite sure mm-hmm. what my life was going to look like from that point on. So I decided to, it occurred to me I had never reviewed Seconds yet, so I decided to make that my repertory review. So I watched it, and I was 42 at the time that this screening was, and I, it was night and day watching this movie with a lifetime of experience uh, yeah. and lived experience in life. Um, it was it was like night and day re- rewatching this, and it became a very personal movie for me because of the fact that, in its own surreal way, it made me think about a lot of the feelings that I was having at that moment. And it's as much as this is another kind of Twilight Zone premise that Frankenheimer is exploiting. I I think this is also something that if you have if you have concerns that pop up when it comes to how your life is going and what you and how life is going for you and what you feel like your life is like, and if you feel like, well, maybe if I had the chance to do something differently, I things would turn out differently. This is a fascinating cautionary tale in that. And it almost, it makes for the case that regardless of how frustrated you can be with life, 
it you probably got to that place in life for a valid reason. And mm-hmm. you might want to see where it takes you before you decide to go into a different direction. Well, yeah, it's about, you know, it's in the case of this, the character of Arthur played by John Randolph, you know, he's he feels his life is completely empty. And he's introduced to this, uh, you know, this person, this place where they go and they could make a, a change, you know, a transformation. And just he and, and going over the emptiness kind of of his life, he kind of sees that he does want to make a change, but make it from the physical. Yeah. Like, uh, I think it's like, it's, 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 it's dangerous. It is a cautionary tale because it's like, everyone has desires. Everyone wishes that they could be taller, they could be thinner, that they could, you know, ha- have this, have that, have this amount of money, have this, whatever. But it's desires can be, they can backfire. They could be dangerous on you because there's always like, there's a price that you always pay. Yeah. And I think that uh, in the case of Arthur, you know, when he does opt to make that change that in- includes uh, plastic surgery, you know, mm-hmm. and changing uh, not only uh, the facial, but like, you know, changing his voice and changing uh, everything that makes him who he is. And it's, yeah. uh, and now it, it's, I, I, like I said, the first time I saw this was probably about 30 years ago. And it was, it was different for me coming back as well, because just, you know, seeing how, you know, you go, I mean, you go on Instagram every day and, you know, people are body shaming some someone for uh something that if they're you know if someone posts a photo and they're happy with who they are and then someone comes on and just you know takes time out of their day to just tell them like oh you're fat or you're this or that and it's 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 like uh it's it cripples that person but uh, in the case of i i was i was thinking here wondering the character of arthur you know if in the age of like Instagram and stuff like that. If he had had that, you know, if he had had this transformation and then, you know, posting everything on Instagram and getting all of the likes and follows, because that's what we're all, you know, fascinated with now, getting likes and follows and all of that. And it's, but is it, it's not enough. Yeah. That can't possibly be enough. That can't be fulfilling. So, I, I find this to be a very sad movie. Yeah. It is effective, sad, but very, very sad. sad. Sad is very, very much the way to, best way to put it. Um it's it and it's it very much ends in a dark joke too. Um the the way this movie uh the way this movie ends up. And um no, and it's funny because of the fact that it wasn't until I mean I had seen Christmas Vacation by the point that I'd seen Seconds the first time, it didn't register with me. John Randolph, who played Arthur Hamilton, was Clark Griswold's dad in Christmas Vacation. And so it's like, oh, wow, okay. Um, And I might have recognized Murray Hamilton from from Jaws, of course. Uh, He's he's at the uh, second... Will Gear, yeah. He's at the second... uh, facility and um but of course Rock Hudson was who was familiar with because 
my mother had shown me pillow talk. My mother had shown me, uh, um, oh, what's the other? Lover Come Back by this point. So I had seen those. And, you know, it's like you, I, I enjoyed those. They were, they were fine. You know, this is, this is a performance by Rock Hudson that is very much on another level from those, oh, yeah. those work. And especially when you see, especially when you are familiar with his life and the way he ended his life, the way his life ended, dying of AIDS, and the fact that he was... He he was he was gay and um you know you you wonder you know he he wanted to be in this movie he wanted to do something different and you know I I like that he took this challenge to be with Frankenheimer in this movie as somebody who is not completely comfortable in their own skin and somebody who even if it looks like they have everything they wanted. There's going to be this this thing in the back of their head that's going, "Is this really what I want? Is is this really?" Because every time, as soon as uh, Wilson takes over, the Hudson version of the character takes over, you get the Tony. You you get the feeling that he feels very disillusioned with his new life. Yeah. Even though it's very much something they dreamed of, it's not necessarily something that he's happy with. And that's what I love about the way that this baits the hook for Arthur and then the way the punchline is well, maybe you were probably better off in the life that you thought you weren't, you, you need to uh, get away from. Yeah. It, um, again, I mean, Rock Hudson, I'd say this is probably the best, best role he was ever given. I mean, uh, you know, I think like uh, Frankenheimer really saw something in him. And again, it's just an example of like, he was able to get these performances out of a, uh, you know, actors. I mean, I think I think he did offer it to Kirk Douglas first, but um, yeah, he, for whatever Kirk reason, Douglas Kirk Douglas is a, didn't uh, do it. Producer on it. So, yeah, yeah. But I think Paramount wanted. Uh, what did they want? They wanted. Oh, they wanted Lawrence Olivier. Oh yeah, that's right. Olivier. That would have been. Um, but Olivier would have been. Let's see. I, I don't know if that would have worked. I mean. There's something about Rock Hudson because because Rock Hudson in his career was known more for how he looked and yeah. not always lauded for his you know his achievements as an actor that the idea that someone who was as incredibly handsome uh, as he was that that he would be able to do this kind of transformation you know and he could probably relate to of course a lot of things touching upon uh, everything that you were saying, Brian, a moment ago, that um, he was able to dig deep. And I, again, I don't think he ever got that other, that opportunity uh, ever again. Um, but ultimately, I mean, it's, it's a sad film. Yeah. Uh, very, very effective. Um, I would say this is probably, 
probably the last of, of his run of movies in the '60s. This was probably his, I think, his the last of the success. He did one in 1968 called The Gypsy Moths with Deborah Carr and Gene Hackman, which actually he considers one of his favorite movies, but I don't think it did very well uh, when it came out. And this film uh, did not do well when it came out either. Oh, I think no. it, um, I, when I went to, uh, I saw it on AMC and uh, good old Bob Dorian, like yeah, he said, this was not a, and of course it was one of those movies like in the eighties that achieved uh, cult status. And it actually started to achieve that status uh, after Rock Hudson had passed away. Uh, friends had persuaded him to not do this movie because they knew that it was going to be a painful movie. And, uh, but uh, I, I'm, I'm glad he, I'm, I'm sure it must have been a painful experience, but uh, his performance is just, I think is, is stellar in it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, we, we, we would be oh. remiss if we didn't bring up the opening titles by the one and only Saul Bass. Oh yeah. Uh, coupled with a Jerry Golds another Jerry Goldsmith score that just resonates with a degree of suspense and anxiety to it. And then of course there's the and cinematography by James Wong Howe. Oh, one of the masters. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because of the fact that you know, one of the one of the things that you get in this movie from a visual standpoint, one of the things that Frankenheimer does in order to put us in the perspective of uh, Arthur slash Tony is he has the camera on a rig where on the actor when they're walking. If you have mm -hmm. seen a Spike Lee movie, if you've seen Requiem for a Dream, this is something that very much is you're familiar with already. You you know this you you know this technique, and I mean I I love the way Frankenheimer, who might have been the first one to really implement in this one, um, with how how he how he uses it, and it it goes to that sense of unease that the character is going through. And I mean, the, the way this, the way the opening is edited, the way, the way the movie itself is edited. Um, and the fact that it takes so long for the movie to really show us, well, what is this, what is this company offering? Arthur, what was what was he being author, offered? And the fact that it's thirty minutes until we see Rock Hudson, so mm -hmm. I mean, it's that's that's a challenging thing in and of itself. And when I wrote about it in twenty twenty, I I I made the comparison that it's like this would be a fascinating companion piece with The Graduate, the Mike Nichols film. Because I mean, really, in a way, they 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 make sort of sense from a thematic standpoint. Because the graduate is about a college student who is bombarded with adults who's telling him what type of life he needs to go to to be successful. And then second, it's about middle-aged man who, after going after that life he was told would be successful, he's not sure how he feels about it. 
Yeah. And, you know, and of course, Murray Hamilton is in both movies. But, yeah. um, <laughs> but the thing is, it's like there's, there's a bookend to these, this story. And, you know, I, I think it's, that's one of the things I didn't get in 1996 when I watched this movie. But it's something that crystal clear now, thinking about where my life has gone, where my life has been. Because in my 20s, I did not end up in the sort of life that I expected to be or I wanted to be. But if you ask me now if there was anything I would necessarily change, there might be a few things, but ultimately the direction my life has gone has led me to a better place that might not have been on in that other in that other timeline. Right. I think there's a kind of uh, restlessness that people have that, and I think like uh, like Benjamin Braddock had that. I think maybe in the uh, like Benjamin Braddock, like he just the the only time he was ever content was when he was in the pool, like just yeah. kind of relaxing. And while his parents were kind of pushing him, like you know Ben, you need to be this. He's trying to figure out well what what am I going to be? Yeah. What am I and for Arthur, he's, like you said, he's gone through the journey and he wonders, was it all enough? Or was, did it, was everything I did, was it worth it? Like, and he kind of wants to do it again, but right. like do it, do it differently or do it better or, 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 you know, I mean, I don't know. It's, and I think that's like tying, tying in with like today, like just, you know, uh, you know, people who want to be, uh, you know, TikTok stars or something like yeah. that. They all they want to be singers and actors and performers, but uh, they want to they want to skip the whole training and you know yeah. all of that kind of stuff and just go right to just being famous. Or mm -hmm. but but what they find, I would imagine, a lot of them find is that they're they're missing out on the best part, which is the journey. Yeah. That's the thing is, you know, I don't think Arthur has enjoyed the journey. And yeah. it's, you know, it's like, uh, and I think ultimately that's what the, the movie's about. It's like, look, you can change all of these kinds of things. You could change your nose, you could change your face, you could change everything, but in your soul, it's still you. Mm -hmm. And like that, and that's the thing that you can't change. Yeah. You can't yeah. change that. And like, uh, and that's ultimately like, uh, and it's a movie, it's a hard movie to, I could understand why, because when the movie played at the Cannes Film Festival in 66, it got booze. Yeah. It was booed. And uh, I mean, it, it was ahead of its time. I mean, Frankenheimer's films, a lot of them were a little bit, I think, like you said, like they were a little bit before yeah. the time. And I think this one, it was a gamble. I mean, I don't think it really was really embraced by audiences uh, until well, 30 years later, probably. Yeah. No, that's, that's a, no, that's, that's absolutely true. And to your point, I mean, you know, that's, that's the thing. I mean, I, I, I think, I think for me, I was somebody, yeah, I might have, I might have been thinking about this unconsciously. Uh, you know, I, I was somebody who, you know, sort of like you were saying as far as TikTok stars now and who just want to be 
get famous quick and you know skip every skip the journey along the way. I think to a certain extent, when I got out of college, I was wanting to skip the journey, and I was just wanting to get to the success. And you know, I I would not. I mean, there are things I would do differently that would be better off for me personally, and might have sped things up for me personally to get to where I am now. But I mean, the overall journey I took, I would not change it for the world because yeah. I mean, it's led me. It you know, and it's funny because of the fact that you know, I when I. Uh, when I went to college, I was a uh, music major and was sound recording major. And my hmm. whole my goal was to do music, was to do composition. Yeah, I mean, of course, I still do that every once in a while. I mean, I I scored a feature film last year. Yeah, but mm-hmm. um, but ultimately, it's funny that so many of the tools that I learned then are going towards what we're doing now, which is podcasting. An yeah. idea that really was not existent in when I started college wasn't even something that I necessarily thought about even as I was starting to write more and more about film. And the thing is, it's like I, I look at that journey, you know, if it weren't for that journey, I wouldn't have met you, for mm-hmm. example. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and we wouldn't be talking right now about these films and so many others that we've talked about. And, um, yeah, I, I just, I can't imagine, you know, I, I can't imagine a situation where I think now that if I had had an easy way of going about things, I would be happier. No, I mean, and the thing is, it's, you got to enjoy the journey and, and it's not easy. There's, you know, I mean, it's like everything, there's bumps in the road and all of that. And, and maybe that's, I mean, in the graduate, that's why I love that ending so much. Like Mike Nichols just left the camera going and Ben, Ben fought for something. He went yeah. out and he, and he did it. And then him and Catherine Ross are sitting on the bus and like, oh shit, now what, <laughs> you know? And it's, yeah. and that's, but that's life. That's that's like, you know, that's the thing about like the movies, like, yeah, I go save the girl from the wedding, and then you know, the credits roll, and then it's like, no, it's like it's it's kind of and like the apartment is another ending. It's like, you know, she says, shut up and deal, and it's like just for tonight. We yeah. have tonight, but like, you know, she knows and the audience knows that they're not gonna make it. There's yeah. not, you know, they're they're just not gonna make it. And that's it's why uh that's why that movie is not a comedy. Yeah. But there's a lot of reasons why that, that the apartment's not a comedy. But uh, now there there are some movies that like that that hit you in a certain way that you wonder, God, like how is this made in 1966? Or like, or how did people not get this? Or it's like um, it, it's amazing. I mean, again, it's like everything that we've said about John Frankenheimer. He he had his. The, he had his finger on the pulse yeah. of like something that was that was coming, like uh, some kind of a revolution in, in the world, in politics, in science, in in, in all of that, and uh, just an incredibly uh, uh, smart guy. I've been looking for his. There was a book. I, I don't know if 
an autobiography about him, but I've been trying to find it because uh, just, you know, you're always fascinated about the trajectory of a filmmaker of like how, you know, like the peaks and valleys, you know, like how in the seventies and the eighties, you know, his, his film career kind of, uh, you know, he had didn't have as many successes as he had in the seven in this, in the sixties, but then he went back to television in the nineties and early two thousands and was like the man when it came yeah. to like, you know, uh, TV movies. And uh, so it's just, curious about how uh about that you know, I'm, I'm always interested about the journey i'm always yeah. interested about the journey mm -hmm. yeah and i mean you know that's that's the thing that is the thing about arthur and that is the thing about you know the character of arthur slash tony in seconds is that you know a lack of I don't necessarily want to say a lack of appreciation of the journey because I think that's part of, but I do think that's part of it, but a lack of awareness that if it wasn't for the journey that you've been on, you might be in worse shape than yeah. you are now. And yeah. that's, that's one of the things, one of the, one of the best scenes in the movie is when Tony goes to see his wife mm -hmm. and as a stranger and he realizes that's when he starts to really realize, Oh my God, I, I threw away a great thing and I didn't recognize it. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not to say that people who make changes in their lives immediately regret. That's certainly not the case. There are some changes that need to, happen for the better, but, um, you know, the idea of saying, oh, I'm going to dramatically change into the person that I wanted to be when I was younger, that's, that's something that I, I think where we, we want to take pause and think about that. Yeah. Know, and realize, well, if you want, if you truly were meant to be that person, you probably would be, but you're not. So what does that say? And yeah, I I I love Seconds, and like you said, it is a very sad movie. It's it's definitely the one where I I think it's the heaviest of the three. I I do think Manchurian Candidate's the best of the three, but it's the heaviest of Seconds. I think is the heaviest of the three because of the fact that I think it cuts deeper. Oh yeah. On a personal level. Um, you know, Manchurian Candidate and Seven Days of May are very much uh political thrillers and they're very mm -hmm. much rooted in that genre. Seconds is it's it's almost a more disturbing and unsettling Twilight Zone episode. Yeah. So except Ron Sterling had nothing to do with this one. But uh, you can see him. You you can see him probably giving it the stamp of approval. It would be. It would definitely be like uh, I think his his kind of movie. You know, and uh, but it's it's always the movies that you know film studios probably didn't get it. Uh, you know, it, it's a movie that uh, it doesn't exactly get one's uh, you know toe tap and hey, let's go see you know an unhappy guy. You know, yeah. but. Uh, no, it, uh, 
I, I think it's an extraordinary movie. And the, and the sad fact, you know, you, you wish that, uh, you know, you wish that Rock Hudson had more opportunities like that to show uh, how good of an actor uh, he was. Yeah. I mean, he, I think he was very underrated. I mean, he, you know, he was very good in Giant. Uh, I, I don't know if he got, I don't know if his performance got overshadowed more by James Dean's, but, uh, but no, I mean, Rock Hudson, uh, he was more than just a, a pretty face. Yeah. Well, Tim, as always, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. And uh, I'm, I'm glad that we had a chance to talk about these movies. I, I'm glad when we get a chance to talk about any movies, but uh, yeah. these, these movies, I was, I've been looking forward to talking to the, talking to you about these movies for probably about a year now. And oh, I'm wow. glad we were finally able to do it. So yeah, no, it's it's pleasure, always a pleasure talking with you, Brian. But especially talking about, I think probably one of the most criminally underrated uh, directors. Uh, and sadly, you know, I mean, he he passed away over twenty years ago now, and yeah. uh, you know, he's not here to uh, talk about his brilliant work. But uh, now I'm glad we, uh, and I just hope people who are listening uh, go out and see these movies. Yeah, and Manchurian Candidate just got released on 4K from uh, Kino Lorber. Uh, Seven Days in May, I believe, is available through Warner Archives. And then Seconds, as I mentioned, is a Criterion release. So uh, they're all available, and they're, I believe they're all available streaming or at least for rent. So, I mean, be sure to check them out and, uh, you know, just just see what Frankenheimer was about I, I, you know, if all you know of his work is stuff like French Connection Two or Island of Dr. Moreau or Braindeer Games, you don't necessarily know everything about uh, Frankenheimer as a filmmaker. I, I think uh, he, he's, he's got, and I'm, I'm certain there's still some blind spots for me that I'm looking forward to fill, filling. And he's got other, I mean, Birdman of Alcatraz, uh, The Young Savages, uh, The Train. I mean, he's got, he's got so many. Uh, he did a movie, that, how Angela Lansbury got cast in The Manchurian Candidate. She had done a movie with him the year before called All Fall Down. It was Warren Beatty, Carl Malden, and uh, Angela Lansbury. And I think originally, I think Bogart wanted, um, he wanted Lucille Ball. To, uh, to, to play Mrs. Iceland and yeah. was pretty adamant about it as Frank Sinatra could be adamant. And uh, John Frankenheimer recommended that he watch All Fall Down for Angela Lansbury. And when Sinatra saw that, he was, he was as sold as everyone else was. <laughs> thank God. But yeah, no. uh, Tim, again, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Brian. Take care, see you soon. I'd like to thank Tim once again for joining me on the podcast. It's always great to talk to him. And um, like I said, I mean, Frankenheimer is somebody who I, does not get enough credit as a filmmaker, and I, he should. And uh, those three films he did in the 60s, I think, are as uh, great and fundamentally unique as we we've gotten from any filmmaker around and i cannot recommend them enough uh all of, all of these were uh all all of these are uh, stone cold classics and terrific films and i hope you enjoyed listening to the conversation we had um that's going to be it for this episode of the 
Sonic Cinema Podcast. Thank you very much for joining me once again. And uh, coming up, we're going to be talking about an actor with an old friend, as well as we're going to be talking about one of my favorite modern uh, kind of conspiratorial thrillers. For now, this is Brian Scuttle. Check us out at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. Subscribe wherever you want at the uh, Sonic Cinema podcast, whether it's Apple, Google, Spotify, Good Pods, or YouTube. And also check out my written work at www.sonic-cinema.com. Thank you.